tell you about a friend of mine, a guy named Ellie Elson. Ellie Elson was a nurse in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And one day, Ellie Elson was doing some business, running an errand, I think, downtown amid the skyscrapers of Rio. And as he came upon the, the Largo do Carioca, which is probably the busiest square in downtown Rio, he saw a small crowd of people gathering, and he wondered what was capturing their attention. So he kind of got in at the edge of the crowd and heard somebody say, there's a young woman lying here on the ground who appears to be in labor. Ellie Elson, being a nurse, thought, perhaps there is something I can do. As he got in closer, he saw that her husband had called 192, the Brazilian equivalent of 9-11 or 9-1-1. And he thought, should I get involved in this situation? I mean, his professional judgment was she wasn't going to wait for the ambulance to arrive. It appeared that she was, was too far into her contractions. And so he had this thought, should I get involved or should I not get involved? Who am I, a stranger, to elbow my way into this very intimate moment? And what if something goes wrong? What if I make a mistake or they think I made a mistake? What if, if someone dies here? What if the child dies? Will I be held responsible? Will I be sued? All these thoughts are going through his mind. And you and I faced moments, maybe not exactly like this, okay? But we face these moments. We drive by them or we walk by them or we overhear them where we could get involved, right? Where we could step into a situation and we know that whether we do or we don't, the consequences of this situation are going to be quite severe. Um, these are moments that we face. And as children of God, we have to believe in faith that God chooses to, to drop us into moments. We have to believe that He orchestrates situations where we can, by loving and by engaging the situation, by helping in a situation, we can bring glory to Him and we can show others the face of Jesus. But often, the convenient or the easy choice not to get involved is, is quite easy to rationalize. I mean, it makes a lot of sense not to get involved, and so oftentimes we don't. But, but the question then is, is, is what does God want me to do? What is the God-honoring choice? Perhaps He did place me in this situation so that I could do something, so that I could show the face of Jesus in this situation. Let's go to Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 4, verse 14. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this? These are the words of a gentleman named Mordecai to his young niece. Who knows, Esther? If perhaps you were made queen for this moment. If God placed you here just for this moment. For much of Esther's life, 
She had been bounced around like a ping pong ball between agonizing circumstances that she did not choose, right? She did not choose to be an orphan, and yet her father and mother had died when she was very young. She did not make a choice to be born in or to live in Persia, far from her homeland around Jerusalem, but that's where she was living. There were so many things she had not chosen. Did she finally have a choice that could make a huge difference in her life and the lives of many? Right? So what was she doing in Persia? Without going into a lot of detail, it all started when the Babylonians were running things. It all started when they had taken over much of the ancient world, and part of their policy for for quelling unrest and for Babylonianizing people so that they could learn the, the languages and the customs and all that stuff, they would kind of shift people around, right? They would move people so that you're not in your homeland anymore. They moved the Jews into the heart of the Babylonian Empire, Um, And at that time, many people from Judea, including King Jehoiakim, had been moved and deported. And she had grown up, therefore, around Susa, one of the important cities of now the Persian Empire. Babylon kind of melded into this new Persian Empire. And she had grown up learning the language, learning the history, learning the culture. In fact, you wouldn't have even known she wasn't Persian. Right Now, her uncle Mordecai, who raised her, had a government job in Susa. And because of his work, Mordecai and Esther were able to keep up with current events in the empire. They knew that King Xerxes was a reckless man, was a hot-headed man. They knew that he had just gotten rid of his queen Vashti because she had, had, she had committed a slight misstep. Luckily, she had kept her life, but she had lost her position as queen. And now what was going on in the kingdom was sort of a version of Persia's next top model reality show, but it was a, a search for the most beautiful maiden in the land who would be chosen and who would be appointed to be the new queen. Now, you could say... Esther was a winner in the genetic lottery. She was a beautiful young woman. She was a knockout both on the inside and on the outside. Um, And she and a number of other young women from around the provinces of Persia were chosen to compete. First, they would receive months of of beauty treatments for free. um, And then they would be presented to the king who would make the final decision who his new queen was to be. Spoiler alert, she won, okay? She she won. Um, Now, there would be a lot of cool stuff about being queen, I guess. I mean, you know, a lot of great food and a lot of great clothes and a great house. And then the not-so-awesome part, you're married to Xerxes, all right? That's the not-so-awesome part. He is a self-centered prideful, explosive anger kind of husband. Um, For the record, we're told Xerxes and no one in the high levels of government realized that Esther, who they had chosen as the new queen, was actually a Jew. We're told in Esther chapter 2 verse 10, Esther didn't say anything about her family and racial background because Mordecai, Uncle Mordecai who raised her, had told her not to. Now, 
he worked in the palace, Mordecai, but don't think he was too important. He was, he was kind of a nobody, at least compared with the prime minister, um, the second in command in Persia, who was this guy named Haman. Haman is not a good person, right? That's putting it mildly. Haman is bloodthirsty. Haman only thinks about himself. He could care less about anyone else. Now, the prime minister, Haman, given his pride and his desire to be worshipped by everybody, um, he had made this decree or gotten this decree passed that required everyone in Persia to bow down to him when he entered a room, with the exception, I'm sure, of King Xerxes. But if he walked into a room, if Haman walked into a room, everyone was required to bow. Now, Mordecai would not bow his knees to a slime bag like Haman. And Haman noticed. And Haman didn't like it at all. And perhaps there's no passage that reveals the dark heart of this man. Then Esther chapter 3 verses 5 to 6. This is from the message. When Haman saw for himself that Mordecai didn't bow down and kneel before him, he was outraged. Meanwhile, having learned that Mordecai was a Jew, Haman hated to waste his fury on just one Jew. He looked for a way to eliminate not just Mordecai, but all Jews throughout the entire kingdom of Xerxes. You make some people mad, they're going to cuss you out. You make some people mad, they're going to flip the bird at you. You make Haman mad, he's going to kill you and your entire race. Real charmer, this guy. Now, here's what you would hope from the leader, from his boss, from Xerxes. You would hope there would be a conversation here. Dude, we got to get you into anger management classes pronto. No, we're not going to kill an entire race of people just because this guy over here hacked you off. That's not going to happen. You would like for Xerxes to say something like this, but instead he says, Haman, great idea. Let's do it. And however you look at it, Haman seems to be sort of an an ancient Hitler, hell-bent on annihilating an ethnic group based on his own blind hatred. So the plan he and the king agreed on would be, was that in about a year's time, we will have a special day when it will be like, kill your Jewish neighbor day. Seriously, that's what it was. Here in like a year, you will be able to kill any of your Jewish neighbors, and you can take all of their stuff. That was the plan. Mordecai worked in the palace. Obviously, he heard about this decree. It got sent out all over the empire with that date in about 12 months' time. And he was, I don't really have words for it. I mean, deeply disturbed. He was uh, beside himself. Mordecai turns to God. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. When Mordecai learned what had been done... He ripped his clothes to shreds, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out in the streets of the city crying out in loud and bitter cries. 
He came only as far as the king's gate, for no one dressed in sackcloth was allowed to enter the king's gate. As the king's order was posted in every province, there was a loud lament among the Jews, fasting, weeping, wailing, and most of them stretched out on sackcloth and ashes. Esther's maids and eunuchs told her, came and told her, the queen was stunned. Side note, funny thing about this book, Esther, scholars say this is the only book in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned, where, where God is not specifically mentioned. And that is true. But if you read the book of Esther, you will see God at work all over the place. I mean, when Mordecai puts on a burlap sack, rubs ashes all over himself, and begins to fast, he is crying out to the Lord for help. When his Jewish brothers and sisters follow his lead and fast, they are seeking the intervention of Yahweh. And you remember, in the history of the children of God, the Jewish people, the children of Israel, when they are threatened with destruction, when they are threatened with, with an enemy that is too big for them, what does God do? Raises up a savior. Raises up a deliverer. When, when they are slaves under the, the heavy yoke of, of Egyptian oppression, God raises up Moses. When a crazy Canaanite king decides he wants to destroy the Jews, God raises up this amazing woman named Deborah. When the Midianites are threatening Israel, he raises up Gideon. And in the words of Esther's uncle, perhaps you were made queen for just a time as this. Now here's the rub. It's not like she could just shoot her husband an email, Xerxes, honey, let's call off this whole destruction of the Jews thing. Let's cancel the decree. It's not like she could just do that because in her position, she could not overturn a royal decree. And Queen Vashti had been sent packing for much less than this. And if she's suddenly dismissed, then she suddenly has no power to stop the onslaught that is about to happen. In fact, and you probably are aware of this, but given, if you've heard the story before, if you've heard the story told, you're probably aware, if you read the book, that given or, or under Persian protocol, for her to even speak to the king without having been summoned could be punishable by death. So this is incredibly risky for her to get involved in any way in this situation. So her plan... Her plan had to be a little bit sneaky. Her plan had to be imaginative. In the past, I remember thinking when I'm hearing this story, what's the deal? I mean, they're married. It's her husband, you know? Some night when they're watching Conan together, can't she just say, honey, let's call off the thing about killing all the Jews, all right? I mean, they're married. Don't they get along? Don't they ever have these conversations, you know, that are private? No, they don't. They're not married in the sense that we think of husbands and wives existing together. In fact, according to the text, she has not talked to him in over a month. Right? 
It was a very rare thing for her to see her husband or for her to have a conversation with her husband. I mean, he had a whole harem of women. Um, She was at the top of the heap, so to speak, but she didn't have a lot of private time with her husband. She was more of a trophy wife. Now, one detail of her fascinating, fascinating story that reveals her faith is the fact that when Esther senses this threat against her people, she sends word out through Mordecai. She sends a request out for all of her people to join with her in fasting in chapter 4, verse 16. And the way God chose to answer her prayer is a remarkable thing. Here's how, here's how it went down. She approached Xerxes one day when he was sitting on his throne. And there was this moment of truth as she approaches him where he can either refuse to listen to her and she's killed. Or he can extend his scepter and hear what she has to say. He extends his scepter and he says, my darling Esther, what do you have to tell me today? What do you want from me? She did not say, rescind the order to kill the Jews. She did not challenge the evil Haman, who's whispering in the king's ear. What she does is say, my darling, I would like to throw a banquet with you and Haman as my special guests. A little bit of a head scratcher, right? But she has thought all of this out. And she is working out her plan. Absolutely, the king replied, I would be delighted to be there. And I'm sure Haman would as well. And he's over there in the corner. Yes, this is the kind of honor I deserve. Just me and the king. A special dinner for us because after all, we're the guys who run this entire empire. More on the plan in a moment. There was one little fly in Haman's ointment. Mordecai is still alive. I mean, this day would be perfect if it wasn't for that guy. And so he orders a team to to go out and build a 70-foot or 75-foot tall gallows on which he will have Mordecai killed the following day. Unfortunately, God had other plans. Or fortunately, depending on what side of the story you land on, um, God is at work in the story. For example, that night, as Xerxes is sleeping, or rather trying to sleep, fitful night, can't sleep, um, he finally gives up on trying to sleep. I wonder why. God at work in the story? His cure for insomnia is... Hey, my attendant, why don't you come in here and bring this giant archive of everything that's happened while I was king of Persia and just start reading it, okay? So the attendant just opens the scroll and just starts reading in a random place, apparently random place, and it's a story. A few years back, there was a, a plot to kill the king. It was a highly secret plot led by some very high-ranking folks here in the palace. A low-level official overheard that this plot was going on, reported it to the king, and the king's life was saved. Name of the low-level official? This guy, king, you've probably never heard of, named Mordecai. Hmm. 
The next morning, the king calls his trusted advisor, Haman, to his side and says, Haman, I, I need your help. Haman is like, absolutely anything. The king says, let's say hypothetically that there is someone here in the palace who I really want to honor. What exactly would I do to show my appreciation for someone like this? Haman is obviously thinking, yeah, it's about time. It's his chance to say exactly what he would like to happen. This would be my perfect day, Haman is thinking. Here's why I would recommend King Xerxes. First of all, go into your closet, take out your royal robes, and cover the man with your royal robes. Then we're going to put this person on one of your royal stallions. We're going to surround this individual with an honor guard. And they are going to parade around the streets of Susa chanting how amazing this guy is and saying this is what the king does for someone he wants to honor. Yeah. And Xerxes says, that sounds great. I want you to go and do everything exactly as you have just laid it out for this guy Mordecai. Do you know who he is? Yeah. I know who he is. Haman is stunned. And obviously he has to comply with this. So he goes... Gets Mordecai dressed in those fancy robes, puts him on the fancy horse, has him paraded around the town as Haman leads shouts of honor for his enemy, who, remember, he's planning to kill the next day. Awkward. He goes home, he is depressed and a little bit scared. The guy that I was planning to kill tomorrow is the guy the king has singled out for great honor. The king was very happy about the lunch. Haman was also happy about the lunch that was going to be thrown in his honor. So the king and Haman show up for the lunch, and the king is so happy, he says to his wife, Esther... What can I do for you? How can I bless you? This is such a magnificent meal. You've done me such an honor. What can I do for you? Esther basically says this, For one thing, you cannot kill me and not kill my people. Xerxes, what are you talking about? Kill you? Why would I kill you? Now you see, king, there is this order that was signed by you and set out among the kingdom that all of the Jews of which I am one are to be killed on a certain day in the future. And there is a certain individual who has been planting this hatred and who has been planning my destruction and the destruction of my, my people. And the king is enraged he is furious. Who would do such a thing? Who would threaten the life of my queen? Him. Haman. The guy sitting on the other side of the table. 
that's who. And in a cruel irony, Haman is executed promptly on the very gallows he built the death of Mordecai. After Haman's death, Esther is able to acquire his estate and acquire his position and give all of that to her uncle Mordecai. The great story. She convinces the king to, to amend the order that would provide for the destruction of the Jews, to amend it so that the Jews will have the right to defend themselves. They will have legal protection to defend themselves. And what happens is when that day finally arrives, far from being a day when the Jewish people are destroyed, it is a day when their enemies are destroyed. And when their safety and prosperity is secured for many years to come, it is a complete 180. And the Jews, after that day, through a huge celebration, and even today, the Jewish people continue to celebrate this day, Purim, when they remember the courage of Esther, when they remember how she and Mordecai provided for the protection of their people, and how God worked in that story to bless and protect his people. Esther chapter 9, verses 27 to 28. It became a tradition for them, their children, and all future converts to remember these two days every year on the specified dates set down in the letter. These days are to be remembered and kept by every single generation, every last family, every province, every city. These days of Purim must never be neglected among the Jews. The memory of them must never die out among their descendants. By the way, Purim is today, February the 24th this year. Pretty cool, huh? Esther had one of those moments where she was called to make a decision that she knew would influence a lot of people and would determine her destiny. She could make a convenient decision. She could stay quiet. Maybe Mordecai was wrong. Maybe everything would work out well, and at least she would escape with her life. After all, she was the queen, but maybe not. And instead of choosing the status quo, she made the courageous decision to be a voice for innocent people. And because of her, millions were saved Mordecai asked her, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. And so today, as millions of Jewish people celebrate and remember her courage, they remember her willingness to risk everything for the good of her people. They remember her spiritual leadership, calling on a community-wide fast. They remember the way God honored her faith. They remember the way her courage brought about deliverance for her people. And so in light of all of that, the question for us is this. Who knows if you were made boss for such a time as this? Who knows if you, were, if you are a spouse 
or a father or a mother. Who knows if you are a business partner? Who knows if you are a neighbor? Who knows if you are a passerby? For such a time as this, for this precise moment, oftentimes making the convenient don't get involved decision is easy to rationalize, but is it the right one? Is it the God-honoring decision? I know you're dying to know how the story of Ellie Elson works out. So back to our brother in Rio. Ellie Elson had to make a, a split-second decision there in the Largo do Carioca. A young woman in labor needed assistance. He had medical training, thought he could be of some help to her. At the same time, you always run this risk when you get involved in a situation, especially when you don't know people involved. So Ellie Elson took action, told the couple that he was a nurse, told the couple that her labor was too far along to just wait for the ambulance, reassured them that everything was going to be fine, and then walked them through the process. And when the ambulance finally arrived, the couple was holding their newborn twins in their arms. To this day, seven years later, every time the twins celebrate their birthdays, Ellie Elson is invited to put on a party hat and be there at their birthday party. And I think about our family of faith here in Dallas. I think about lots of you. I think today as I was looking through the bulletin, looking at these mission possibilities, I was thinking about Chuck and Emily Stevens, a young couple at Preston Crest, who moved to Rwanda months ago so that they could serve and teach children in Rwanda. I think about Amy Willis, one of our, one of our singles, who is a school teacher, who just decided, I'm going to move to Africa, and I'm going to work with, with young orphan women who, who sew purses and, and help them turn that into a viable business model. And so she's going to be moving there this summer. I think of, of so many of you who've gotten involved in the mission of God. And, and like I said, in the bulletin today, on that inside back cover, you are going to see a menu of possibilities. Things that you could get involved in this year in different parts of the world where you could engage in the mission of God and you could change people's lives. But more than that, my prayer is that you will open your eyes to the menu of possibilities right here. The possibilities that God will set in front of you when you're on your way to work tomorrow or in the workplace or in line at the grocery store. There are so many opportunities for God's people to get involved right here in front of us in our city. Jesus calls us to be salt and light in a tasteless and dark world. Jesus calls us to be salt and light, but so often over time, his, his followers begin as salt and light, and they end up as judge and jury. We're called to make a difference in the world. After all, this world belongs to our Father. As a disciple of Jesus, you can walk in freedom 
And you can serve in freedom knowing that your sin debt has been retired on the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, your sins will not be held against you. You can walk in a confidence, even in a dangerous world, knowing that whatever happens, even death cannot separate you from the love of the Father. So Jesus wants to tell you this morning that you're not here by accident. You're in this place at this time so that you can bring glory to God and so that you can meet the needs of desperate people. You're here for such a time as this.